From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Canoy, and this is The Exchange. Alzheimer's is considered an old person's disease, but what if you were diagnosed at 50? A recent Concord Monitor series highlighted the particular challenges of granite staters with what's called younger-onset Alzheimer's. Many were still working, had children at home, and were often initially misdiagnosed because doctors considered them simply not old enough for Alzheimer's. This hour in the exchange, when Alzheimer's strikes young. And later, it's our Race for the First series, focusing on the wide open seat for New Hampshire's first congressional district. Right now, though, share your stories and questions about early onset Alzheimer's. Our email is exchange at nhpr.org, exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange or call in 1-800-892-6477. We have three guests with us in studio, Dr. Robert Santulli, Honorary Associate Professor of Psychiatry with the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and the former director of the Dartmouth Memory Clinic. And Dr. Santulli, it's nice to see you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. And also with us, Brenda Bouchard. Her husband, Ken, developed younger onset Alzheimer's, passed away last November. She also takes care of her mother, who has Alzheimer's. And Brenda serves on the board of the Massachusetts, New Hampshire chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And Brenda, it's really good of you to be here, and I'm sorry about your loss. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Also with us, Leah Willingham, reporter for the Concord Monitor, whose recent series, Stolen Memories, covered how families and patients in New Hampshire cope with younger onset Alzheimer's disease. And Leah, thank you for helping us out. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, and Leah, why look at younger onset Alzheimer's? What were you hearing or seeing in the community that made you think, you know, I need to devote a couple days of reporting to this? It's interesting, actually, because I had actually not gone into this project intending to write about younger onset Alzheimer's. I had hoped to maybe devote a series to just covering Alzheimer's in general, and maybe one of the stories would be about younger onset. But once I kind of started delving into that story, I realized that it really deserved more coverage, and there were a lot of unique financial, social, workplace challenges that were special to that group that really hadn't been talked about too much or reported on, and I felt like it was deserving of that. Well, that's why we decided to follow up with you and do this program today, because while we've done lots and lots of programs earlier on Alzheimer's in general, research, struggles, care, family issues, we haven't focused on this early onset piece of it. Um, And as you know, Leah, having done this reporting, you know, Alzheimer's is always scary to get as a diagnosis. The road is always difficult. But how is it particularly challenging for younger granite staters and their families? Well, in the first place, these younger people, um, many in their 50s, early 60s, they have families, they're still working, and they're trying to navigate this diagnosis while still balancing those pieces of their lives. Sometimes, and actually often what happens with younger people with this disease is there's a huge delay in diagnosis. And so someone will start having symptoms and they can have them for a few years and not know really what's going on. And that they run into issues at work. Some people end up losing their jobs and then they're only later diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And 
we all know what the cost of this disease is. So, you know, not having that retirement and not having the savings of older people can really be challenging and having to support a family and children as well. Well, and if you're 55, you're not anywhere close to being on Medicare yet. So the financing alone, and there was one story, um, I mean, they all jumped out at me, Leah, but in terms of the particular challenges of younger onset, there was one story about a man who um, got fired from his job because he was just forgetting things. He was, you know, not showing up. Um, just remind us what that was about. True, yes. Yeah. So um, Andrew Harvard was the director of outdoor programs at Dartmouth College, and he lost his job in 2008 after um, some issues over a period of time uh, where, you know, he was, you know, not responding to emails, sometimes missing emails meetings, um, disappearing for periods of time. and Which is bad behavior yeah, at work. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's not great behavior, no. And um, eventually, you know, he, he lost his job because of that. They didn't really know what was going on. He was misdiagnosed with depression, I think, for a period of time. And then it was only later, I think, uh, nine months later, that he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And it was difficult because had he been diagnosed while he was still working, he would have been entitled to all sorts of disability benefits that he couldn't access because he was no longer working at the college. So that was difficult, and especially, again, when we're talking about this incredibly expensive disease that can take a toll. Well, Dr. Santilli, I'd love to hear from you, too, the particular challenges for early-onset Alzheimer's patients. Well, I think Leah has uh, indicated one of the big issues is that because it comes on at such an early age, we don't tend to, and doctors tend not to think about Alzheimer's as the primary reason when people are having behavioral issues or work, workplace problems. You think of a million things before you think of that, especially if somebody's in their 40s or 50s. 40s. Uh, wow. You see patients with Alzheimer's in their 40s? Very rarely, thank goodness, but it's more common in the 50s and 60s for the younger onset group. It's been reported as young as in the 30s. I personally have never seen that, but when someone is in their mid you know, their mid-50s or early 60s, and things start changing at work, it's, it's, people are thinking of it more now, but still it's way down on the list of all the things you might consider. So as Leah said, people can go for years before an actual diagnosis is made, and often things have to get really to a very difficult point before someone finally says, wait a minute, this isn't depression, this isn't substance abuse, this isn't just somebody getting lazy, this is something serious going on with the brain. Well, and from your doctor's perspective, you know, um, I understand why a doctor might misdiagnose. People in their early to mid-50s have a lot going on. They might have kids at home. Um, we expect a little bit of cognitive or physical decline as we age. Um, they may have kids at home, aging parents, still the same pressures of work. They may be at the peak of their profession, so lots of demands there. I mean, there's a lot going on That's in right. your 50s. So from a doctor's perspective, it'd be easy to say, you're anxious, you're depressed, you're exhausted, take a vacation, have some depression medication. All of those things happen. And because there is no absolute definite sign for the disease, that it's a really a gradual process and accumulation of symptoms that makes a physician finally say, maybe this is Alzheimer's disease or some form of dementia, that contributes to it. If we had a, a simple test or a, even not a simple test, any kind of test that would actually tell us this is what's going on, that would be very, very beneficial for 
or people who are struggling, trying to figure out why are these changing ha- changes happening to my loved one or to my employee or whatever. Well, so there is no test. I know there's no blood test, but there's no way to look at someone's brain and see the tangled plaques and, and so forth that they talk about with there, brains affected by There are increasing... Uh, there's no brain scan? There are scans that are used now, but on a, mostly on a research basis. It's not clear that what you see on the scan is all that to- closely correlated with disease. I see. For example, people, we can do a scan that will show whether or not someone has a lot of amyloid in their brain, but we know that people can have that without having Alzheimer's, so it's not as reliable as we'd like. We need something that's better than that and more predicted more predictive than that. Also, those scans are f- tremendously expensive, so they're not the first thing that people will, will want to order or uh, get, obtain, particularly, as you say, they're not on Medicare yet, and uh, many insurance companies won't cover them because they are considered still somewhat experimental. Um, the three people interviewed in Profiled in Leah's series were mm-hmm. all men, Dr. Santuli. Was mm-hmm. that a coincidence, or does younger onset Alzheimer's tend to strike men more than women? No, I think that's pretty much a coincidence. It's, a coincidence. It's, okay. Yeah. All right. Brenda, I want to bring you into this, too. And um, again, I'm sorry for your loss of your husband. Ken, how old was he when you first started wondering? Ken seems a little off. He was about 58 or 59 years old when we first started noticing that he was a bit off. And what did you notice that seemed off? Well, Ken was a math physics major out of Tufts and later went on to Yale and um, attained his uh, his uh, master's degree in engineering. So he was pretty good at math. <laughs> and after being together for nearly 20 years, when we'd go to a restaurant, he'd start to slide the bill over to me, and I recognized that he could no longer calculate the tip. Wow. For somebody with that degree of mathematical ability, that's shocking. It it was. It was. He also was a very great orator. And as is common with many people, um, sometimes conversations become difficult. And he started to freeze up when he would public speak. He um, also at home started to, he would ask me on any given day, what's the weather going to be today? And I would tell him. He had a lot of balls up in the air. He'd ask me a second time because he was in his 50s and he did have a lot going on. He'd ask me a second time and I thought he just didn't lay down the answer. He has too far too much going on. But when he started asking me five, six, or a dozen times in 10 minutes, then I recognized he's not remembering. Yeah, that's different than, you know, oops, I was sort of half paying attention and making toast while you told me what the weather was. But five times in 10 minutes is a lot. That's right. So what did you do, Brenda? Well, it took a while, and our diagnosis probably parallels many people's diagnosis. Eventually, when Ken um, would go to public speak, he would freeze up, and he couldn't find his words. So he went to see his primary care. His primary care suspected it was anxiety. So he sent him to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist diagnosed him with anxiety. Even he had never had anxiety in his life and um, put him on medication. After six months of medication and no changes, he went back to his primary care. His primary care gave him, at that time, what was probably a typical test. He asked him to retrieve three words from memory, draw a clock, 
and to spell the word world backwards, which Ken couldn't accomplish. So he, sa- he said in that 10, 15, or 20-minute visit, he came to us and said, your husband has Alzheimer's disease after that visit. He sent us to a local neurologist. The local neurologist said, I don't believe this is Alzheimer's disease, and he sent him on to a neurologist at Mass General. After a year or more of testing, we eventually got the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. Many people who develop mild cognitive impairment go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. Wow, that's a long trajectory, though, Brenda. It's, it's typical in, in terms of the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. It's, it's you know, there's, in, ter- in terms of doctors looking at this, as Dr. Santuli mentioned, it probably is not first of mind, but there is also no way to prevent, tr- effectively treat, or cure Alzheimer's disease. And we need to remember there are no survivors. Lots more questions for all of you, but I want to remind our listeners, you can join us, and people are already sending an email. You can email us, exchange at nhpr.org, exchange at nhpr.org. We want your questions and personal stories with what's called early-onset Alzheimer's. A recent Concord Monitor series highlighted the particular challenges of Granite Staters diagnosed with this illness much earlier than expected, and that, as we're learning, has raised a whole host of issues around finances, and family and misdiagnosis. Join us with your comments and questions. 1-800-892-6477. 1-800-892-NHPR. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org, exchange at nhpr.org, or respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. And uh, here's an email that came in from Christopher in Manchester. I'll throw this to you, Dr. Santuli. Christopher says, is there a greater genetic component to early onset Alzheimer's than late in life onset? Thank you, Christopher. There, uh, There's a whole group of people who have early onset Alzheimer's who do have genetic uh, uh, factors that are contributing or causing the disease. That's still a fairly small percentage, but there is something called familial Alzheimer's disease, where if you have one of three mutant genes, you are almost 100% determined to get the gene, to get the disease. And that's a group that's being studied now very carefully because they're looking at people who we know have the, the gene but don't yet have the disease, trying to figure out ways to maybe treat them before the symptoms appear. For many of the people with early onset Alzheimer's disease, though they are really no different than people with older onset Alzheimer's disease, except for their age. In other words, they may have gene risk factors or they may not, but uh, and we still don't understand why some of those people do develop the disease early on. You know, so we can detect the gene that determines if we'll get Alzheimer's or not? Well, only in a certain very small percentage of cases who have the so-called familial Alzheimer's I disease. See. There are, there are, they're very important from a research point of view, but they're very small in number. Well, Christopher, thank you for the email. And here's another one from Brennan um, who says, when my mother's memory started to fade in her late 50s, doctors were confounded. It was the early 2000s, and there was not as much familiarity with early-onset Alzheimer's. My mother underwent extensive testing, and nothing was conclusive, so they began her on a serious cycle of Lyme's antibiotic treatment with regular infusions. Boy, it only served a week in her system. Finally, a year later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's uh, and Lewy body dementia, which impacted her thinking, mood, and eventually movement. This began a five-year deterioration until her untimely 
death. Wow, Brennan, what a story. And thank you for the email. And this, Brenda, this gets to what you talked about. And you also wrote about Leah. But Brenda, you first, this long road of misdiagnosis. Well, it's it's quite common. As I said, our story, while not exactly similar to everybody else's stories, is parallels many people's stories of diagnosis. Did you want to say something else, Brenda? Well, I think that um, what I would suggest to people is to just keep keep at it, keep going back, because it is a long road. There's no simple fix, and um, it's not simple to get a diagnosis. And how do people pay for that? Maybe you can talk about that, Leah. How do people pay for this long road that Brenda was on um, and, and Brennan's uh, family, too, with his mother? How do people afford all those tests and extra doctor's visit that insurance companies might see as superfluous? Well, that's one of the major challenges, and it's something that Dr. Santuli hinted at um, when he said these tests, like the PET scans, the MRIs, spinal taps, that you can get that can you know, help you indicate you know, whether you have the disease or not, are so expensive, and that contributes to the delay. I know the Harvard family, again, Andrew Harvard was um, lost his job because of his Alzheimer's before he was diagnosed. Um, part of the delay in their process of diagnosis that they've spoken about is that they couldn't afford those tests right away, so they had to wait. And I think that um, younger people, and um, maybe Brenda can speak about this, I'm not sure, can have access to um, some government programs. We have to wait two years, I think, before you can have access to that. Um, so that can be a challenge. And since younger onset is not well understood, I'm guessing, Dr. Santuli, maybe you can jump in. That, and plus, who wants that diagnosis anyway? So it's probably human nature to say, well, I'm not going to get that test. It's expensive and I probably don't need it. You're talking about from the patient point of view. Yeah, and the family right, point of view. Right. That's another yeah, reason sure. why people, diagnosis is held off. Go absolutely, ahead. yes. People, number one, can't afford it. Insurance may not cover it if they do have insurance. Uh, and people just don't want to know. So even if it is recommended or suggested, it's something that people may well choose to delay or just avoid completely. And that's unfortunate. On the other hand, None of these tests, as very interesting as they are, are pathognomonic. None of these tests will tell you absolutely this is Alzheimer's or no, it is not. So while it's very interesting to do it, and they're done very frequently in research settings, clinically they're still not ready for wide use. It's so frustrating to hear. Here we are, 2018. Alzheimer's is such a big problem. Only going to get bigger as the population ages. Absolutely. And we really are just kind of guessing. So A great deal of it is that. Brenda, I'll let you definitely follow up after a short break. And we'll keep taking your emails. Thank you for those. Exchange at nhpr.org is the email address. The phone number is 1-800-892-6477. By the way, if you want to read Leah Willingham's series, Stolen Memories, on Younger Onset Alzheimer's, you can find a link on our website. It's nhpr.org exchange. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Spring is just about here, and Morning Edition is hitting the road. In our new weekly series, we're traveling across the Granite State to take you to new places and introduce you to new people. 
Yeah, the moon looks very cinematic. What are we expecting to see tonight? Now, people come here to see the alpacas. Homebrewers starting out, how do you get from just whipping up batches in your basement to opening up your own tasting room? Listen to Radio Field Trips, Morning Edition's new series about New Hampshire life and culture, Wednesday mornings from 5 to 9 on NHPR. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Canoy. Today, we're following up on a series in the Concord Monitor called Stolen Memories. It tells the stories of Granite Staters diagnosed with what's called younger onset or early onset Alzheimer's. Later in the hour, our race for the first series continues, looking at that wide-open congressional seat in New Hampshire's first district. But let's get your questions and personal stories in right now about younger onset Alzheimer's. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org, exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange, or give us a call 1-800-892-6477. Our guests are Brenda Bouchard. Her husband, Ken, developed younger onset Alzheimer's. He died in November. Brenda also serves on the board of the Massachusetts-New Hampshire chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Leah Willingham is with us. She's a reporter for the Concord Monitor who produced that series I mentioned, Stolen Memories. You can check it out on our website if you'd like. And also with us, Dr. Robert Santulli, Honorary Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and the former director of the Dartmouth Memory Clinic. And um, Brenda, just before the break, we were talking about that sort of confluence of factors that prevents people from getting a diagnosis earlier cost that Leah mentioned, Dr. Santuli mentioned, the difficulty of diagnosis, but also just human nature, not wanting to know. I'd love your personal perspective on why it takes so long to get this diagnosis. Well, I think uh, for all of those reasons, that is why it takes so long. But I'd, I'd also like to address what it's like to receive the diagnosis once you finally do get there. Alzheimer's is a disease of behavior. And most of us are not equipped to deal with a disease of that nature. So when you receive the diagnosis, you figuratively get a bag from the doctor with all of your future behaviors in that bag. You don't know what, behave, what behaviors you'll have, how long they'll last, and what the next behavior will be. You walk out of the doctor's office with them telling you, we'll see you in six months, because there isn't a lot that they can do for you. So as regular people, we walk out into the wild, wild west that is Alzheimer's disease today, trying to figure out how to navigate this disease of behavior. This, in New Hampshire and everywhere, services are slim. Um, it's underprovided for this population. And we also live in a rural state, which makes it even more challenging. So with each new behavior, maybe as the caregiver, you think, I've got this behavior. I can do this. I know I have it. But it we changes. stand on shifting sand. Right. And so and the resources are, are slim. So each one of us is searching out the resources and reinventing the wheel that hundreds and hundreds of people have reinvented before us. At one point, I thought that an adult day program would benefit my husband, but there were no adult day programs in my area of New Hampshire with a younger onset population. So we found one in Massachusetts where there were about a dozen people who had a younger onset Alzheimer's disease. We commuted my husband down there and and that that truly benefited him but one other thing I would like to say where resources are so slim is that our chapter of the Massachusetts New Hampshire Alzheimer's Associations provides free educational programming throughout the state um, in terms of from the beginning of the disease all the way to end of life 
They also have available a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week hotline where people can call in to connect with somebody. And lastly, it's so important to develop a network of support because this is such a long-term disease and you're going to need to lean into it. They also offer free care consultations. And over seven or eight years, once or twice a year, I would check in with my care consultant who educated me through the process and helped me to navigate really tricky pieces of the behavior, which in turn gave my mother and Ken much better care than I ever could have afforded to them had I been left on my own. Well, so feel free to reach out. It's interesting what you say about um, resources uh, that are available, financial and and so forth. And there was that um, adult daycare center, but not for a younger person like Ken. That's right. And and the cost of it, we were discussing earlier insurance and the cost of this disease in general, but the cost, cost of these programs are not covered, and they're very expensive. Well, and again, with early onset Alzheimer's, and none of this is to say that it isn't a problem at any age, obviously, but this is the first time that we on the exchange have looked at this particular piece of it. There's special challenges for families, right, Leah, when you get early onset Alzheimer's. A lot of times it's the primary breadwinner who gets this disease. Yes, that's very true. Um, all of the men who I profiled in my series were professionals, working professionals. One was a lawyer, one was a primary care doctor, and another one was also a lawyer, but the director of outdoor programs at Dartmouth. When so high-level jobs. Yes, very high-level jobs. And what's really interesting about that is that because, as we've talked about, it takes so much time and so many resources to get diagnosed, uh, you wonder about the population of people who have less resources who possibly aren't getting that diagnosis because everyone that I talked to was a professional with access to those resources. And speaking to, um, you know, people at the Alzheimer's Association, they kind of echoed that idea that all of the younger people that they see are uh, working professionals. So we know that this disease does not discriminate. So we know there are probably other people out there who never get a di- diagnosis of younger onset. But to your um, point about the the breadwinners, something that really highlights that, I think, one of my stories about um, Paul Ernsting, who was a doctor in Dover. He, his wife, Susan, after his diagnosis at the age of 52. Had 52? To, yes. Wow, that's really young. Yeah, he was the youngest um, you know, person that I profiled for the series. He, you know, had to stop working and stay at home. And his wife, um, who's an elementary school teacher in the Rochester School District, had to continue working to provide him health insurance, you know, after he was a doctor for more than 20 years. Right, because, again, he doesn't get Medicare. He's way too young. And something that she was really struggling with is, you know, whether to stop working and enjoy the years that she had with him while he's still really present and there, or to continue to work and to be able to provide that insurance and that safety for them. And she actually decided um, this year to retire at the age of 56. She's 56 now. Um, And she's not sure what, you know, they're going to do about benefits. So it's really But she wants to be present with him now when he's still talking and walking. And And, and and he needs her. You know, he's, he's declining as people do. And he's not able to be, you know, home alone like he was before. He's going to need her. So that's tough. Wow. All right. Let's go to our listeners. And again, the number 1-800-892-6464. 
1-800-227-6677. Got a couple emails here, too, that I'd like to share with you. Our email address is exchange at nhpr.org. And uh, Chris is calling in from Nashua. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Welcome. Hi, Laura. Hi. Um, first, my uh, condolences and, and um, to all those who are suffering from Alzheimer's. It sounds horrible. Uh, obviously, I hope I never have to deal with that. Um, my my question really has to do with, and I don't know if anybody can really speak to it, but where does the state-of-the-art medical research stand on the subject? I mean, last I heard that they had identified certain proteins that accumulate in the brain, but, you know, I don't know if any progress has been made since. Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. Thank you so much. Dr. Santulli, go ahead, please. There certainly is a lot of research going on, and uh, the uh, NIH has, in the last couple of years, significantly increased the amount of money that it puts into research, although many feel it's still nowhere near enough. The problem is that we still don't know what the cause of Alzheimer's is, younger or older onset for that matter. And so it's very hard to come up with very meaningful treatments for the disease. There are a lot of ideas. There are a lot of things in clinical trials. Most of the clinical trials, the vast majority of clinical trials that have been done for this disease have failed. And That's are, amazing to you know, me. What? That, that so much has failed despite all the efforts. The, it's estimated that about 99% of the clinical trials for Alzheimer's have, has failed, have failed for this disease. It's just uh, it's very disheartening when that happens because this is not something, well, you'll try it for a few weeks and then it fails. This, these trials go on for years and people are given medications, uh, which there's great hope will be helpful to them. And so far, there's been very, very, very little that has shown any benefit whatsoever. Why do you suppose that is, Dr. Santuli? Well, I, one of the main theories that as to why that is is that the treatments are being applied too late. By the time someone has symptoms, the problem is really already uh, uh, too far along, and it's a matter of unscrambling an egg. It can't be done. So there's an increasing effort to try to identify people who are at risk for the disease and treat them before they have any symptoms to see whether or not that will make a difference. There's a big clinical trial going on. It started down in Boston, and it's around the country now, uh, that is looking at one of the immunotherapies that is being given to people who have amyloid plaque in their brain and presumably are at high risk for developing the disease to see whether or not giving this immunotherapy will make a difference for them. But that the, the results of that are still several years off. And when the same drug was trialed with people who already had symptoms, it didn't do anything. So we're really not sure. There's a movement away from some of the focus on amyloid towards other areas of investigation, looking at tau protein, which is another abnormality, looking at inflammation in the brain. So there's a lot of work going on there. But the predominant theory has been related to amyloid, and people are beginning to question whether that's the right way to go. Wow, that's really interesting. So, and it raises an ethical dilemma, doesn't it, Dr. Santuli? You know, if you are predisposed to Alzheimer's, kind of on one hand, who wants to know that? On the other hand, you might be able to get help because it sounds like once you start showing symptoms, it's, it's not a cure. Well, that's right. And that the, the, the help that's available is really currently only through these clinical trials where you have maybe a 60%, 60 chance of getting the medication, a 40% chance of getting the placebo. And we don't even know that the medicines are helpful. So there are, there are certainly people who really do want to know, but you're, all, you're absolutely right. There's an awful lot of people who don't want to know. And certainly until there's a very clear treatment, 
there are many people who say, don't bother me with it. Let's take another call. Thank you for that one, Chris. It's a great question. Julie's in Concord. Hi, Julie. You're on the air. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, This is directed to the doctor. Um, I am turning 50 this year, and I'm one of those people who do want to know, oddly enough. My grandfather died from Alzheimer's. My mother currently is living with it in a nursing home, and I wanted to know if there's advice for anything I can actively do. I'm on disability, have Medicare, and have a neurologist uh, through Dartmouth, actually. And I've had an MRI about a year and a half ago, and everything came out normal. But uh, I didn't know if you had any words to speak to this. Yeah, so you're keeping an eye on it, Julie, given your history. So um, good for you. Uh, Dr. Santuli, what do you think? Well, it's it's one of the very frustrating things. We, I got asked this question many, many, many times from practice. What can I do to prevent this when people will come in with their parents or whatever or who with a history similar to, to hers? And unfortunately, other than giving people very generic advice like keep yourself healthy, keep your mind active, keep your body healthy, uh, lower your weight, lower your blood pressure, don't get diabetes, all those good things that are good for a whole variety of health uh, effects – there's really nothing more specific to do than that. The other thing I would always add to that is uh, do all those things and give money to the, to uh, research uh, because right. I think that may in the end be one of the most important things that, that can be done to try to find a better reason, to a better treatment for this disease. Julie, thank you for calling and good luck to you. Again, the number is 1-800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at NHPR. Org. Here's an email from Ellie, who is um, currently studying in college. Geront- she's a health sciences major and a gerontology minor, so she's got an interest in this. Um, she says, I volunteer at an adult daycare that doubles as a children's daycare center. Ellie says, I'd like to see New Hampshire with some more daycare centers available for those who want to keep their family member at home but need to work to support them. Um, how much of this is available, Brenda? What do you know about this? Well, um, at the time that we were looking, there were very few. There were no day programs for my husband where there were younger onset people there. And I do recall bringing him a couple of times to visit various um, day programs. And honestly, he would look at me and say, you don't think I'm that old, do you? You don't think I fit in there. Now, granted, I don't know that his perception of himself was accurate at the time, but nevertheless, what a horrible feeling to feel like I don't see anybody who looks like me. Right. Leah, go ahead. It's true, and um, I think the biggest resource for people now is the Easter Seals in Manchester. They have a daycare there. It's not specialized for younger people, but I have heard of people with younger onset going there. The daycares are a tremendous help because they are so much less expensive than, you know, going to an assisted living center. I think it's about the average is $70 a day or something for daycare, and you can still keep the individual at home and maybe work, whereas a nursing home is thousands thousands of dollars a month. Right. So if you can manage to accomplish that, then that could help you a lot in the long run. Like the woman that you spoke about a few minutes ago who had made that terrible decision, do I work and continue with the health insurance or do I stay at home with my loved one? The daycare kind of helps out with that. Yeah, and, and that's that piece. something that she certainly spoke about um, echoing um, what Brenda said is that there weren't many resources for her 
um, that really were devoted to younger people. And she was worried that Paul would feel isolated or uncomfortable in a place where, you know, he was surrounded, he wasn't surrounded by his peers. And also there's a concern where these younger people are in pretty good physical condition most of the time. And people at daycares and sometimes nursing homes, if you find the right one, hopefully they're equipped for this, but they're not used to dealing with people of that kind of physical physicality. And so, you know, who's to stop someone from just walking out if they don't want to be there unless... And walking vigorously. (laughs) Two of the men that you profiled were quite fit and mobile. Um, I mean, really, all of them. Um, You know, Paul was on his baseball team in college. He was an avid golfer, a bowler. Um, Andy Harvard, who is um, the man of Dartmouth, he was an Everest expeditioner. And then Ken was very active as well. I mean, he was an avid gardener. Um, He loved being outside, did lots of housework. Um, They all were in great physical condition. Go ahead, Dr. Santuli. I can see when I jump in. I was just going to uh, agree with what Leah said about the the problem of younger people fitting in. It's not only in day programs, but also in when you go to assisted living or a nursing home. It's very uncomfortable for people to be in places where they are probably 20 years younger than the rest of the population. And because they're so uncommon, uh, it's so uncommon, the staff isn't really well equipped at how to deal with this. So it's a, they don't fit in. In our, you know, in our small state and, and rural state, we don't have a lot of resources. We don't, have, we don't have tons of resources for older people. There's only one adult day program up in the Upper Valley, and it's been on and off because it can't get people to go. So it's, uh, but it's a tremendously valuable thing if people will take advantage of it, and not enough do. Well, I want to let everybody know there's more resources on our website. Leah's series is there. Lots of resources from the Alzheimer's Association, the um, local chapter that you work with, Brenda. We're going to close it out now, but I really want to direct people to the website for more information, nhpr.org slash exchange. And thank all of you for coming in. Brenda, it was really good to meet you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Brenda Bouchard. Again, her husband, Ken, developed Younger Onset Alzheimer's. She serves on the board of the Massachusetts, New Hampshire chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And Leah, thank you for helping us out as well. Really thank appreciate it. Thank you so much it. for having me. Leah Willingham, reporter for the Concord Monitor. Her recent series, Stolen Memories, covers early onset Alzheimer's. Dr. Santuli, you're a busy guy. We really appreciate you mm-hmm. being here. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Dr. Robert Santuli, honorary associate professor of psychiatry at the Geisel School and the former director of the Dartmouth Memory Clinic. Now, coming up, it is our Race for the First series where we focus on all the candidates for the first congressional district. Up next, we're going to take a pause from hearing from the candidates themselves to get the big picture of this race. NHPR's Lauren Children will be with us. You can listen to our interview and watch it on Facebook Live. And let's bring you into the conversation now. Get your calls in before we get going. 1-800-892-6477. All that's coming up. Keep it right here. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. Hey, if you like what you heard, spread the word. Please give us a review on iTunes to help other listeners find us. And thanks.